Live from Southern California, this is the Jim Rome Show. I'm going to need a little bit of space here for the opening block. Normally that is the case, but I've got a lot to say about the Brooklyn Nets. Starting with how awesome they are. I mean, they really are. The Nets are awesome. Like some folks were picking this team to win it all. Some folks were saying not only will they win it all, but they're going to go down as one of the all-time greats. Instead, here they are on the verge of getting swept in the first round. Not just swept, but humiliated, clowned, mocked, laughed at. (laughs) They're down 3-0, and people really were saying they could win it all. They're down 3-0, and people were talking about them winning 70 games when the season started. People were saying they could be right up there with the great Warrior and Bulls teams. Hell, they might be done before the Pelicans. Not only will they not be hanging a banner in Brooklyn, there were actually Let's Go Celtics chants in Brooklyn. Let's Go Celtics chants in Brooklyn. And while credit does go to Boston for locking the Nets the hell up defensively, why don't we go ahead and spread the blame around? Why don't we share some blame amongst Kevin Durant and Kyrie Irving for how they've handled this, which is to say terribly. Durant has vanished. An absolute no-show for the alleged best player in the world. Let's look at Kevin Durant. Game one, bad. Game two, Worse. Game three, nothing. He took fewer shots than Bruce Brown in a must-win game. So it's not just that the Celtics' defense has made life hard for Durant. They have erased him completely. They have made the alleged best player in the world disappear. Now you see him, now you don't. But if you're looking for him, he's probably on one of his burner accounts thumbing out something worthless to somebody he doesn't even know and never will meet. Again, we're freaking talking about Kevin Durant here, an all-time great. One of the guys who was going to bring everything he learned from Golden State's culture and help build a winner in Brooklyn. So exactly where the hell is the alleged best player on the planet when his team needs him most? And where's the guy who thinks he's even better than the alleged greatest player on the planet. Because Kyrie has not been much better. The only consistent thing from Kyrie in this series is Kyrie's insistence that none of this is his fault. You know, we, we're all just trying to gel. And, and usually you're gelling around the right time. And that, that team in the other locker room is gelling at the right time. They've been gelling since Christmas. So for us, we, we're, we're just in a, in a new experience as a group, and, and we just got to respect that and just, you know, bring everything we can to this next game and, and just do one possession at a time. You know, I don't want to be too cliche, but I don't have a lot of answers for how you make up time, you know, from October until now when, you know, usually teams would be gelling and things would be feeling good. I wish I had a better way to put this than to say this. Rich as hell. This guy's talking about how they have not had enough time to gel. Rich as hell. In other words, (coughs) excuse me, we are all trying to figure out who did this. (coughs) Thank you, Alvin. We're all trying to figure out who did this, says the guy who did this. 
Can I repeat that? We are all trying to figure out who did this, says the guy who did this. If only there would have been more ways for the team to gel during the season, says the guy who quit on his team during the season. That's the question you have to ask right now. Are KD and Kyrie quitting on this team? Are they in operation shutdown right now? Or is this actually them trying their hardest? Because either way, it's bad. Either way, it's the worst. I'm going to digress for one second. A a guy who took himself out of half of their games this season is saying they didn't have enough time to gel as a team. Rich as hell. Richer than Bill Gates. Richer than Warren Buffett. Richer than Elon Musk. The richest thing ever. We just didn't have enough time. We didn't have enough time together, says the guy who took himself out of half the games. For guys who allegedly learned how to win on other teams, they certainly have not brought any of that knowledge and culture to this train wreck because the Nets have no culture. There's no backbone. There's no spine. There's no grit. There's no heart. And if they do actually have any of that, they're not showing it. And if they're not showing it, the hell are they saving it for? They do know the playoffs have started, right? Yeah, but don't worry. Don't worry. Ben Simmons is coming to save the day. Ben Simmons is coming for game four. The ultimate winner and grinder is going to be there to bail them out, right? Wrong. Wrong. Turns out Ben is not coming back. Not tonight. Somewhere between the Nets losing at home in Game 3 and facing an elimination game tonight, Simmons began to have back pain once again. Woj had reported yesterday, quote, that after approximately 10 days of pain-free ramp-up, following recovery from a herniated disc, Simmons' admission at the team practice facility was met with surprise and disappointment. End of quote. Uh Uh-huh. And Jim Rome is reporting right now that I am surprised and disappointed that the Nets are surprised and disappointed. Better yet, when asked for a reaction to the Nets' reaction that Simmons won't go tonight, Jim Rome said, and I quote, get the hell out of here with that. The hell out of here with that. And then I couldn't stop laughing. <laughs> They're surprised and disappointed that Ben Simmons is not going tonight. Now that's funny. You do know who you're dealing with, right? You were banking on Ben Simmons saving your season. That guy. What have you ever seen from him that would make you think that he's seriously intended on going tonight? What, you thought this guy was going to go Willis Reed tonight? Look, I never want to be the guy who has an extremely high tolerance for somebody else's pain. And I also hate to be that guy who questions anybody else's heart or desire to get in the fight or rejoin the fight. But is there anybody anywhere not affiliated with the Nets who is surprised by anything that Ben Simmons does or doesn't do at this point? Does this really look like a guy who will do and has done 
everything in his power to be there for his teammates and the organization? Or maybe is that dude doing just the opposite of that? As little as possible to be there for anybody other than himself and his banker. Again, I've got no idea. No idea what he's dealing with mentally and physically, but I do know this. My man looked pretty damn comfortable just sitting there. And his teammates looked pretty damn uncomfortable with him just sitting there. Joel Embiid, as an example, is out there playing with a thumb that is barely still attached to his hand. We already know he's going to need surgery as soon as the season's over. But the big fellow's out there giving it everything he has. And he clearly isn't right. But he's trying. He's giving it everything he has. Abandoning the fight is not an option for Joe, but apparently joining the fight is not an option for Ben. Again, has this dude ever, ever thrown off the vibe that he's willing to do anything and everything to get back on the court? Ever. Unfortunately, no, which is too bad. And not for the 76ers or the Nets, but because I was really hoping to see him tonight. Not so we can have an actual series, because we know that's not going to happen, but because I wanted Simmons to have the ultimate stat line. Zero regular season games, one playoff game, and done. Now that's a hell of a season right there. Even better, even better, he would have a stat line that read losing in back-to-back elimination games. That's not easy. You imagine that? Back-to-back games, back-to-back elimination games. Now that's a stat. And he's cheating us of that. Never mind his teammates. Never mind his fans. Never mind Adam Silver. Why don't we talk about me for a minute? I want to see that stat line. A guy who went back-to-back elimination games. But if the Nets truly believed that he was coming to save or even extend their season tonight, man, they're even more dysfunctional than I thought they were. Tell you what, with or without Simmons... The Nets better man the hell up for their own self-respect and find a way to win tonight. I mean, I'm not even talking about winning that series because that's not going to happen. But have some self-respect. Like, I don't have a lot of faith that it's going to happen because they don't have much heart. But they have some, right? They have to at least have enough heart to prevent getting swept in the first round when they were the favorites to win the whole thing entering the season. And folks were talking about them going down as one of the greatest teams ever. But you make no mistake about this. And I did tell you I'd need some time at the top of the show for it. Make no mistake about this. Classic sweep or gentleman sweep, it is a total catastrophe. A total disaster. You want to know how bad it is? It's even worse than the Lakers this year. And the Lakers had their worst year ever. As horrible as L.A. was, and they were horrible, they actually dealt with some actual injuries. This bleep show that, that is the Nets is entirely self-imposed by the Nets. No one did anything to these guys. They did it to themselves. And even worse, they don't even know it. So if you've got any pride or any heart, you will find a way to win tonight to give Ben Simmons... One more chance to raise your hopes only to stab you in the back because his back still hurts and then you can all act surprised all over again. Because the Celtics are everything that the Nets aren't. 
They've got heart, grit, toughness, pride. They D the hell up. Nets, by the way, cover nobody ever. And the Nets don't have any of that, and they never will. If there is a positive, however, and you know me, I am the ultimate glasses half full guy. I look for the positive in everything. Can't you tell from this opening take? I'm about that life. If there's a positive, and you do have to dig pretty hard to find a silver lining in the Nets, it is that Kyrie, KD, and Simmons took up so much of my opening segment, I've got no time left for Steve Nash. And let's not act like Nash isn't to blame as well. Like, I am so exhausted assessing the Nets' big three that saying nothing about Nash's coaching is actually a positive for him, for life, for life. Jungle Tourette's, even I have it. For life, for life, for life. So, yo, Steve. (laughs) (laughs) There you got that creepy laugh. (laughs) Hey, Steve, congrats. Congrats on dodging that scud. That daisy cutter. Just know that you are not without blame. Because you're not helping them. You're hurting a man. And you shouldn't be just standing there not making the necessary adjustments. Man. And he shouldn't be talking about it on the radio, man. And shouldn't be standing there on TV not making any adjustments and helping a man. Hey, listen. Do you have an account with Coinbase? Or are you thinking of opening one? Cryptocurrency may represent the future of money, and it is one of the most exciting investment opportunities to come around in quite some time. But, but, what about the taxes? Have you thought about that? With an auto crypto IRA, you can trade crypto like Bitcoin and avoid or defer the taxes. Get into investing in crypto. I have, but do it in a tax-advantaged retirement account. Alto's crypto IRA is the easiest way to get crypto into an IRA. That way you can trade all you want without the tax headache. And you can create an account in only a few minutes and invest with as little as $10. No setup charges and no account fees. And secure trading 24-7 through Alto's integration with Coinbase. So why would you not do this? Open up an Alto Crypto IRA with as little as $10. Just go to altoira.com slash roam. That's A-L-T oira.com slash Rome and start investing in cryptocurrency today. Go to altoira.com slash Rome, altoira.com slash Rome. We are joined by Jordan Palmer. Jordan, great to have you back. How are you? I'm doing great. How are you doing? Doing great. Doing great. So the NFL draft obviously is upon us. Let me talk to you, Jordan, about a few of your guys. You've been working with Desmond Ritter in the buildup. You've made the point that he's a 35-year-old trapped in a draft prospect's body. So, Jordan, how does that maturity and that professionalism show up in his regard? Well, I just think anytime you go from amateur to pro, whether that's a college student getting their first job, whether that's in you know going from college football to the NFL or any other sport, uh, there's a lot of newness, right? I mean, you go from college to pro. Let's say you go to a big-time program and you have, you know, an Alabama and you have a lot of experience to what, it, what it's like to, um, to be in a professional organization. Um, you still, it's a new team. It's a new league. There's new rules. There's new competition level. I kind of feel like college quarterback and NFL quarterback in a lot of regards is a different sport. Uh, there's so many differences to it. Um, all of a sudden you're making money now all of a sudden you don't have school anymore all of a sudden you know when the day's done in the nfl everyone gets into the locker room they shower and they leave they go home 
in college, you're used to just kicking it with your teammates 24-7. So there's just so much newness when you go from amateur to pro, when you go from college football to the NFL. And so when you have somebody who's very, very mature, and for me, maturity is not tucking in your shirt and being on time. Maturity is handling new situations and being present and poised and confident enough to be able to handle those situations really well all the time. Um, when you have somebody that's really mature from that definition, um, then all the newness of going from college football to the NFL, um, you can mitigate a lot of, uh, of the pitfalls that players have. And when you get an immature guy who takes, needs to happen, have things happen to him a handful of times before he figures it out, that a lot of that times that newness can be overwhelming. And when you get a quarterback who's interested in the NFL and they're overwhelmed, we typically use the word bust. Uh, when we describe those players. I like that a lot. I mean, I don't like a bust, but I like that explanation quite a bit. Jordan Palmer, my guest. So I think you laid this out in great detail, but let me ask you specifically, what is a team going to get when they draft Ritter? So with Desmond, um, he's just a guy who's, you look at his stock and it's just trending upwards. You know, he he only had one or two offers out of high school because he was tiny and he was growing. And so then as he developed, you know, he played well as a freshman. He got better his sophomore year. Junior year, they won the conference championship, almost went to the playoffs. He played well enough to beat Georgia, ended up losing in the bowl game. And then his senior year, he doesn't lose till he gets to the end, has a big game versus Notre Dame. He's just kind of gotten a lot better. And statistically speaking, his senior year was by far his best year. Uh, PFF did a report, and, and all the stuff that matters, he's gotten better uh, from his junior to senior year. He's 26-0 at home. He's never really lost. He's only lost a handful of games in college. Um, and then just from the trajectory he's on right now, uh, he's still growing. He's still maturing uh, in, in, in his, like, on the physical side of things. His approach to mechanics is very, very mature. And uh, he's treats this the way that pros treat this. I've been working with him for two years now. Um, and so I just think two years from now, you know, he's at where he's at right now, which is he's put himself in a position to be potentially a first-round pick. But I, you look two years down the road, and I go, this is absolutely a guy um, that is over the next year to two is when he reaches his potential. Um, he's a guy, he's a six, four guy that runs four, four, that doesn't lose. That's a great, you know, lead, uh, dynamic leader in the locker room and has all of this stuff together off the field. I got, I don't know, like usually that works. <laughs> right? You put him in a good situation. Usually that's going to go well. Jordan Palmer is joining us. He's the founder of QB Summit. So, Jordan, you, of course, work with Joe Burrow. And, of course, he led the Bengals to the Super Bowl. Crazy to me, Jordan, that he still only played 26 regular season games, but he's already at this level. How do you explain that? And then what kind of expectations do you have for him in his third season? Well, I think there's a jump this year. I, I mean, Jim, this is, he's, he's just now entering into his first legitimate offseason. Uh, his draft training was one. He won the national title, Heisman. So his that his world just totally changed. And so we started draft training really in February. We, the first time we threw together was at the Super Bowl in Miami because he needed to take some time off. You know, it was kind of a crazy year at LSU. Was, you know, nobody knew who that guy was to start that season. So when I say life changing, it's, it's like Trevor Lawrence was the number one pick this year. You know, year after Joe, but this wasn't a life changing year for Trevor Lawrence. He was the number one recruit in the country. He's known that, you know, his Adidas campaign was number one since day one, right? For Joe Burrow, it all happened at once. And then um, you go into draft training, and then it was COVID. So he was, like, working with his team on Zoom, right? Like, he didn't meet any of his teammates until training camp. 
And then this last offseason, he tore his ACL. So he stayed in Cincinnati the entire time, rehabbing, all that. Like, he's just now entering into his first real off, legitimate offseason, which what an offseason is for a worker like him is a, represents an opportunity to make improvements, right? And so without any distractions. And he's had the COVID distraction the first year, and then he's had the, the ACL the second. So I see there's a jump coming. For, this is an opportunity to create time and space for him to be able to um, address individual things that he personally wants to get better at and then that he, he wants to see his teammates get better at. So I see there, I see a jump coming. Yeah, I personally cannot wait to see what he looks like in 2022. Jordan Palmer is joining us. Jordan, you were on Instagram yesterday and you were breaking down Russell Wilson going to the Broncos. How do you like that fit for him and the collaboration with Nathaniel, uh, Nathaniel Hackett? So I like it a lot. And, and I think Russell, um, and you've probably been around him, I mean, he is, uh, goes to the beat of his own drum, and he, the way he approaches the offseason outside of Brady is, is probably um, unique, and unique meaning completely different than everyone else does it. This guy's like all in in the offseason. And so – he was able to do that in Seattle and do it at a high level, but that was still Pete Carroll's team, right? Um, that was still, you know, the John Schneider, Pete Carroll built team. They were the Legion of Boom and all that. You know what I mean? Like it was just, he's entering into a place where he gets to create the culture. He gets to create the identity. Just like when Peyton went there, he was able to change things in Denver and it worked. Russell gets to do it, but Russell is in a playing at a way higher level than, than Peyton was when he went to Denver. And so, because of the of uh, Russell's approach to the game in the offseason, I actually think he's heading into his prime. Um, and and so he gets to come in there and instill this culture. And you hear it out of guys out of the locker room right now saying how different it is. He gets to instill that. And Nathaniel Hackett, first-time head coach, I mean, he's had success with Aaron Rodgers, but he's had success with Blake Bortles. And so now you get a guy that comes in here. And, and, and Nathaniel Hackett, for those – most people don't know this, like – He's super smart and he's wildly like charismatic and funny and cool. But he also is one of the few head coaches that, and this is a really good thing here, that it doesn't have a massive ego and he doesn't, it doesn't have to be his way and he doesn't care about the optics of it. He's going to do whatever he thinks best to win. And so that's a perfect combination for a guy like Russell who, you know, wants to have it his way and wants to get things dialed and everybody on the same page and work at a certain pace and a certain, um, you know, and get that team on a certain trajectory. So, I actually just think it's a great fit. The division's hard, but I, Russell's there, young guys, bought in, egoless coach who's going to build it around him and who's, you know, had a really good players play at a high level before. I go, Ugh, this looks like this could work. Jordan Palmer is my guest, and Bronco fans have to be absolutely thrilled to hear that. Jordan, you said something interesting, I think, that or recently that's really interesting to me. You made the point that NFL quarterbacks are made out of wax. What do you mean by that, and then what does that mean for young quarterbacks? Well, I use it as an analogy, um, but um, so these quarterbacks go through, uh, you know, for, for kids that go into college in the NFL, the exposure that they get at a young age is just totally different because of the Internet, because of social media. Um, NIL now has magnified it, and that statement that I made is just it's going to become more true as we add more more as, as we make the lights brighter at a younger age. Um, but some of these quarterbacks, they just they go through this process, and by the time they get to where they're on the big stage in college and pro, they're just hardened, and nothing can really affect them. They don't care. Like this last year for Trevor Lawrence, right? Boy, what a punch to the stomach that year was. We we only as as fans and media, you guys only heard like part of the story 
right? I mean, there's always more to it, right? So everything that Trevor's been through in Jacksonville and Urban Meyer and just the chaos that that was, like, boy, isn't that a tough year for a young guy to go through? But I don't think it's going to affect him. I don't think it's going to have any bearing on what he does next year because he's been hardened through this process, right? It would take a lot of those years to take the wind out of that guy's sails because he's been hardened through this process. But some of these guys, as soon as the lights get bright, they just melt. And so at a young age, when kids can go through it and be a big-time recruit and play at a big-time college and have a lot of adversity, and a lot of people talk trash to them on Twitter, when they can go through that and experience that and learn how they're going to handle it personally, by the time they get to college and pro, I can kind of tell you if I think it's going to work out for them or not. But if they've never experienced that, small school, not recruited, all of a sudden you get to the NFL, and we see this a lot of times, maybe they just, maybe they could be ready for that moment down the road, but they aren't right now, and they're about to melt. And we've seen that happen as well. And so that was kind of the analogy that I used. And it just depends on what those experience, how, how many of those experiences they had through their career and what it did to them. I love that analogy, and I hate that we're out of time, Jordan, because you know that I was going to ask you that if there's so much more that Trevor Lawrence went through with Herb that we don't know about, you know I badly want to ask you if there's a story that you can share. Uh, it's true across the board, all these guys, right? There's always more to it than the story. and so, um, But no, I mean, it's not even any one thing in particular. It's just, just the chaos. That kid went from the most structured environment in high school to the most structured environment in college playing for Dabo Sweeney to something where it was void of structure and I was proud say of him for how he handled it. And he's, it'll be as bad as he's ever, has ever been. And there's nowhere to go, but up. Hey guys, let's talk skincare. Seriously. Skincare can be complicated, especially for men who have never had a skincare routine. That's where Tej Hanley comes in. Tej Hanley is a men's skincare company that helps guys start and maintain a healthy skincare routine by making the process uncomplicated. Every single box comes with an instruction card that tells you when to use each product, how much to use, and in what order. It is so easy and it's so effective. In fact, let me recommend this. The Level 1 system is the easiest way to get started and it comes with all of the basics that you dudes need to take care of your skin. I'm telling you, for the longest time... I never even cared, but I know that I've got to be in front of a camera every single day, so I've got to take care of my skin. And Tiege Hanley makes it so easy for all of the reasons I mentioned. Listen, have you noticed a difference in the way your skin looks and feels? I have, but don't just take my word for it. Tiege Hanley has over 5,000, 5,000 five-star reviews on their website from customers worldwide. And because Tiege Hanley is sponsoring today's episode, they are offering you an amazing deal. Just go to Tiege.com slash Rome and you'll get 30% off your first box plus a free gift. That's T-I-E-G-E dot com slash Rome. An amazing deal. Check it out for yourself and let me know what you think. All right, so really quick, busy weekend in the association. You had New Orleans New Orleans tying up their series against Phoenix. Denver avoiding a sweep. Utah, Dallas tying things up. But to me, the biggest star of the weekend was not actually a player in any of those games and was only on the floor for a few seconds. But it's still an absolute legend. I'm talking about this play from Saturday night's Memphis, Minnesota game. Watch this. What's going on here? Oh, wow. Somebody's run out of the floor. 
Beverly goes into the front row on the other line with these people. And there's somebody else here who's trying they're, to go after, going after Taylor. Taylor. And they're going these after... people are insane. This is getting carried away. Yeah, it's getting carried away to the point that you're, you're endangering the physical welfare of people. I mean, unbelievable job by the security guards here at Target Center to take down the woman who was getting ready to run out of the floor and then the woman that was behind the Taylors. They bought those seats behind Glenn and Becky Taylor with no other intention but to do harm. I'm telling you, you that does not begin to do it justice. Any of it. Any of it. You have to watch that at least... 20 times to fully appreciate the magnitude of how wild and how awesome that was. Everything about that's wild. So you've got Cat and three Grizzlies battling under the boards, and then a security guard and a protester wrestling at the three-point line, and it's all happening at once. And the refs are just letting it go. I mean, I guess that the refs can't really tee the protester up, but they're just letting it all go. And yes, it is the third time in two weeks that somebody's tried to bust up a T-Wolves game to protest something. First, we had Glue Girl. Then it was Chain Gal. And then Saturday night, it was Snot Bubbled Woman. Because that protester never had a chance. If you have not had an opportunity to see the replay of that play, you have to watch this on CBS Sports Network right now or track it down on your own because you will never see a better tackle in your life. You will see the destruction. You will feel the passion. You will immediately want your NFL team to change up their draft board. Goodbye, Aiden Hutchinson. Goodbye, Trayvon Walker. Hello, security guard. Because that security guard right there is an absolute force of nature. That protester came from the second row of courtside seats. She jumped over the front row, ran onto the floor, and probably thought that she had an awesome plan. Unlike the woman who glued herself to the floor and the one who chained herself to the basket, this protester was able to get onto the floor several feet away from the players and was ripping off a shirt to reveal a referee's jersey underneath. Now, I'm not exactly sure what her plan was. I don't know if she knew what her plan was. If she had that referee shirt on, maybe she was going to start calling fouls. Maybe she was going to tee up a coach. We'll never know because the security guard a few seats away read her like a book. The moment that protester started to break for the floor, the security guard was on her. And I mean on her. Read and react. When you zoom in on the security guard, you can see that legend is locked on that protester, knows the play even before they call the play, obviously has been in the dark room night after night after night breaking tape. When you're instinctively that good and you've watched that much tape and your security guard acumen is already off the charts, that sucker trying to get on the floor never had a chance. I have never seen a security guard break that quickly and explosively on a protester. I mean, what I would give to see the tape from the security guard's pro day or the tape from the security guard combine because that was literal protection or perfection from start to finish. 
I'm not even sure the protesters' feet actually touched the floor before that security guard was driving her into the ground. You see, that security guard, anonymous, whoever it was, has everything you could ever want in a security guard. You can't teach that. Everything you'd ever want in a security guard and a free safety. Violent hands. Explosive first move. That security guard is both fast and quick. Elite fast twitch muscles. Twitchy as hell. Explosive in small spaces. Gets to top speed in a heartbeat. Hell, you can walk that security guard up into the box too because that security guard set the edge and then collapsed that play. That security guard is 99 across the board on Madden. That was the moment where hours in the film room show up on the field. Read, diagnose, and explode into that loser who happened to be in the wrong place at the wrong time, namely the floor. However, some of this is also on the protester. Listen, if you see the defense is up on you, if you see them lined up only a few seats away, audible the hell out that play. Go to something else. Any P1, you know, like QB1, any P1 knows this. Freaking Mike was right there staring you down. Change the hell out of the play. Change the hell out of the play that was called. I mean, who are you? You're like the Chad Henney of protesters. Wake the hell up. Have you ever, ever read a defense once? But that loser was so overmatched. No way she was going to win that. No way. Not when you see that security guard's action in the open field. Not when you see that legend operating in space. Textbook. Again, that should be a part of the security guard curriculum. That tape should be shown and taught to anyone and everyone who has ever had the dream of becoming a security guard. And shown also on top of that to every loser who ever thought about making their point by protesting on the floor of a playoff game. If the Vikings need some help on defense, they could do a hell of a lot worse than that security guard. In fact, other than Harrison Smith, I'm not sure they can do any better. That right there was Ronnie Lott in his prime. That right there was Brian Urlacher. That right there was reading the offense, seeing the cues, and jumping that route like a boss. Attack the play, wrap up, drive your opponent to the ground, and then drag that opponent off the floor in utter disgrace. The only thing missing from that was the NFL Films music. Alvin, if it's not too much to ask, and I don't want to get on the wrong side of Rich Ackerman again, can you give this security guard the music bed that they really need?
York, way to go. New York with the super slow-mo on the vid. I know Rich had nothing to do with that. Just playing Rich. That's awesome. The super slow-mo of the takedown. And that security job finished. Security guard finished that job. I don't know about you, but I see that clip. I see a franchise player for years to come. I see someone you can build around. No red flags here. That is leadership on the field and in the locker room. A hard hat mentality. Bringing the lunch pail to work. That's the epitome of do your job. And on Saturday night, do your job meant flying over a row of seats to tackle somebody in a fake ref's jersey at the three-point line. After the game, Anthony Edwards had some advice for anyone and everyone who's been thinking about or actually running onto the floor. I don't even know what that was. Man. Yeah, man, what's up? Possession, though. <laughs> yeah. yeah. No, I think we got the ball back. Nah, we didn't, jump we ball. Didn't, we didn't get it. Ball. They wanted to. <laughs> yeah, yeah y'all got to stop that, man. Yeah, put this out there. Yeah, y'all got to stop running on the floor in Minnesota. Do that in Memphis. Don't do that in Minnesota. <laughs> three and go No, don't do it. In, we don't need it. Hey, by the way, the stats indicate that you do need it. They've actually played well. Every time one of those losers has gotten on the floor, they've won, I think. But I'll do you a step better. I'll go a step further. Ant, don't do it in Memphis either. Don't do it anywhere. But definitely don't do it in Minnesota unless you want to get slobber knocked and snot bubbled by a security guard. Again, if you haven't seen this, go find it. And New York just did a great job of running it in super slow-mo. I'm telling you, I cannot stop watching it because I appreciate excellence. I appreciate obsession with craft. And I appreciate imbeciles getting what they deserve. Yeah, I'm not saying Glenn Taylor's a good dude. Far from it. But I'm saying there's a right way and a wrong way to demonstrate and protest. And also, for the record... We got a bunch of other idiots doing idiotic things around Major League Baseball, too. Idiot Yankee fans, idiot Padre fans, and this is not exclusive to those two ballparks either. Just idiots. People throwing things on the field, people giving each other the hands in the stands, breaking faces. The hell has gotten into fans? I mean, I will make the distinction between protesters and fans. But I've got a separate take on fans. The hell has gotten into all you fans? Remember that that rap that, well, it's because of the pandemic, and they had been away for a while, and they forgot how to act. I always thought that was pretty stupid. I didn't buy that for a second. However, we've gotten far enough away from the pandemic, and you've been coming back long enough that you can't even use that as an excuse if you want to. The hell has gotten into fans? Like, it's bad. Hey, clones, what do we want when we're craving protein and we need more energy? I'll tell you what we don't want. Bars, sugary snacks, energy drinks. Nah, we want beef, pure and simple. So where's the beef? It's in a package of Old Trapper beef jerky. Old Trapper is not your father's jerky. Shriveled, dry, tasteless. No, Old Trapper beef jerky is made from lean strips of steak and quality spices that are smoked over a real wood fire. So it's tender and tasty. It's never tough. So why is it so good? Because Old Trapper is a 50-year-old family business known for their relentless commitment to quality. 
In other words, they take smoked beef extremely seriously, and you can taste it in every single bite. Old Trapper is packed with protein and comes in four amazing flavors to satisfy all your cravings. Quality smoked meat at its finest that goes with you wherever you go, to the game, to the gym, to the beach, anywhere at all. So look for Old Trapper in the Clearview bag. You can see the quality that you're buying. Look for it in major retail stores near you. If you don't see it, ask for it by name because no other jerky compares. Oh, Trapper, what's your beef? We are joined by Luke Robitaille. Luke, it is so good to have you on the show. Luke, how are you? I'm doing great. How are you doing? Luke, I am awesome. It's great to hear your voice on the show once again. Let me jump right to it, Luke, because you've got two games left in the regular season, and the team has won five of your last six. You are knocking on the door of your first playoff berth in four years. When you and I spoke recently, we talked about this big plan, the grand plan that you had when you got there. So I've got to ask, you're not there yet, but you are so close. How are you doing right now, and what is the vibe like around the team? We're doing good. Uh, you know, it's uh, it's funny that when you get at this time of the year, how nervous you get. Like you always see, like hockey operation or the operation of any team, or a sports team, like how old they seem to get like quickly. And now I get it. <laughs> right. Sure, every game. So look, it's got to help. You know, you've been here before. You've been here as a player. You've been here as an executive. How much does it help, though, when you've got guys that have been through it before? When you've got guys like Anze Kopitar and Dustin Brown and Jonathan Quick, how how nice or how good is it to have guys that have been through the battles and know how to react when it happens? Yeah, those guys are really important at this time of the year. They've been through the battle. They never panic. And when you have some young guys on your team and they see how they perform day in and day out, practices and so forth, it really does help you. Luke Robitaille is joining us. Luke, the thing is about the year, it's so interesting in the sense that the team started the season 1-5-1. and one, And this kind of goes to what you and I are talking about right now. You get off to a tough start like that, and it's kind of interesting to see what kind of an effect it's going to have inside of the room. You know, maybe guys start to give in either consciously or unconsciously. This group did not do that. What did that tell you about that group early in the year when they got hit with the adversity and they responded the way they did? Yeah, you know, it's funny. We When we started the season and we didn't win, we all do data. Every team is doing their own data and, and researching. We we actually looked really good on paper. It just didn't look good on the score sheet, but we were playing well. So we kind of knew if we'd stick to what we were doing, we'd be okay. And as it turned out, we were right. We're talking to Luke Robitaille. You know, Luke's been very clear also that what you're building here is a team that plays a certain way, right, in terms of applying pressure, never giving up. How would you describe the style and identity that you wanted to see in this rebuild, and are you seeing it now? Hey, sorry, I got cut off a little bit on the question. Can you repeat it real quickly? Yeah, look, what kind of a style and identity were you looking to develop and build with this team when you started this process, and are you seeing it now? Yeah, we focus on speed. Character was the most important thing. Like, we look, obviously, you want skill and speed, but character was always what we've been talking about. Every draft for the last four years, we've talked about that. And then when, when it came down to acquiring players, whether it was Arvidsson or Deneau, like it was really important for us to to have players that would understand a system and play within the team because we know Kopi is that way, Drew's that way, Quickie is that way, Dustin Brown's that way. So that was important to keep going with that trend. 
All right, so speaking of Drew, Drew Doty, what has he meant to the organization overall? What has Drew meant? Well, Drew is like the ultimate winner. He just wants to win. And he's one of those players, the better your team is, the better he is. He, 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 doesn't, he didn't like the last few years when we'd be out of the playoffs for the last like three, four weeks. He likes to be in the hunt. And this year, every game that he's played, he, he was our best D. I mean, I've, I still get calls from other teams present telling me how great he was when he was playing this year and and he tried everything he could to come back this year. Unfortunately, he wasn't able to. We're talking to Luke Robitaille. You know, Luke, you mentioned that when you wanted to build that thing, you wanted to build it with character first. I'm curious, when it comes to the postseason and when it comes to playoffs, what wins in the postseason? I mean, is it speed? Is it physicality? Is it execution? Is it pure talent? Or maybe is it character? Well, talent will, will always help. Uh but it, it's what are you willing to do to help the cause of the organization? You know, suddenly it's like a, we're seeing it with our team where guys were blocking shots and playing hard, but suddenly in one game we blocked 28 shots, and then you're, you're doing more. And, you know, and it hurts to block shots. I mean, you can't be willing to pay a price. And the talent will help you, but it's the little intangible, like it, what's, what matters for the greater good of the cause and who's willing to pay that price? So if you have 20 guys willing to do that, you're going to win a lot of games. Luke Robitaille joining us. You, Luke, you and I had a conversation about that very thing not too long ago. When in your hockey life did you first learn that or see that? Or when was that point really hammered home to you that if you've got a room full of guys willing to give themselves up for the betterment of the team, in fact, it goes beyond the room, right? Does it not spread throughout the entire organization? Yeah, the entire organization has to be pulling in the same direction. That's really important. Uh, when did I learn that? Oh. I mean, I think we always talked about it go, being a, a being you know a, as a kid growing up in Canada and playing the game. But I don't really think you really know what it takes to win until you win. And you got to have the right veterans on your team that have done it before that could really help you. Like for me. I thought I knew, and I always played the game and tried everything I could to win and got emotional when we were down 3-2 and so forth. But winning it in Detroit, I realized that it really did. It took everyone, including everyone, like you say, in the organization. We're talking to Luke Robitaille. So to that point, a couple of years back, the Athletic did a piece on that 0-1-0-2 Red Wings team that you were a part of. In the offseason before that year, the team brought in Dominic Hasek, and you and Brett Hull, like, what do you remember about that training camp that year and looking around? Because you had obviously played with a lot of great players before. Yeah. What do you remember about looking around and seeing all that talent? And then did you know that was going to be a Stanley Cup winning team? Well, that was the goal. Like, we knew that was a very special team. I mean, uh, you, we weren't sure then, but if you look back, there was 11 members of that team, actually 12, including Ken Holland, they're gonna either a gonna be in the Hall of Fame or already in the Hall of Fame, which is truly incredible. But what I remember the best is Scotty Bowman. He wasn't really on the ice the first two three days, and at, I think by the third practice, he came by the board and he called Dave Lewis, the assistant coach that was making a skate, and he said, "Hey, Dave and Scotty, you never really spoke that much, but he got mad at the assistant coach because he said." Don't make him skate too hard, he said, because we're going to play till June. 
And he said that in September. I never forgot those words. I'm like, wow, this <laughs> he's getting us ready now. Luke, that's that, that that's a great story, but that you had 11 potential or future Hall of Famers in that same room. I mean, maybe you knew yeah. then, maybe you didn't know that all 11 were going in, but what in the world was it like to be in a room like that? It was uh it was it was humbling in a way. But we all knew, no matter what, it was Stevie Eisenman's team. And then everybody had a voice, like Shani had a voice, Chris Chelios had a voice, Nick Lidstrom. You know, there was a lot of guys that, w- that would speak. But Steve Eisenman, that was his team, no matter what. We all knew. And I think no, whenever you have, like, a super team like that, you still have to have the leader be the leader. Luke, I'm fascinated by that. Luke Robitaille is my guest. I'm, I'm absolutely fascinated by that. These are some of the greatest players ever, some of the biggest and strongest personalities ever, some of the most headstrong guys ever. I mean, you're talking about Shelly and Shani and Nicholas Lidstrom, and you're there. Hull, and Stevie and Brett Hall. Holly. You know, okay, so, but we're talking about, and you just said it point blank, but everybody knew it was Stevie Eiserman's team. It's long been said, and some really believe this in their heart of hearts, that Steve Eiserman is like the greatest captain of any captain in any sport. What was it that made him so unique that nobody questioned, in a room like that, that that was the guy and that was his team? Uh, I would say, obviously, his work ethic. I mean, every one of those great captains, they work as hard or harder than everybody else. Uh is integrity too? There's something about him where, like, these guys when they speak, everybody listens. I mean, I always say, you know, Rob Blake's in that vein, Joe Sackick. They they don't speak a lot, but when they speak, everybody listens. And they, they it's funny these guys they commend respect for all the older players, all the young players. Everyone seems to re- have the ultimate respect for these guys, which is very rare. So what was 99 like in that regard? In terms of leadership, obviously Gretz was just different in every regard in what he could do and what he could see. But in terms of leadership, how did the other guys respond to him? I mean, was it similar to Stevie Y or was it totally different? What was that like? Gretz was the same. Gretz didn't speak a lot, but when he said something, everyone listened. And, I mean, Gretz is the greatest player to ever play the game. And when he spoke in the room, he only spoke when the games were really meaningful. The rest of the time, he just performed. And, and he, what, I, what I love the most about Gretz is if you were down 3-2 in the third period, even if he had the two goals on your team, he would find a way to create five, six, seven, eight scoring chances out of nowhere. Like, even in his last couple of years, it was amazing. But... When Gretz spoke, I remember in 93 when we went to the finals. I mean, he spoke a few times in the locker room, and we knew he, he was the one taking us to the next level. Luke Robitaille is joining us for a few more moments. Luke, you just said that he's the best ever. And, again, you're in the Hall of Fame. You're an executive right now, so you are working with and analyzing and evaluating the best young talent in the game right now. What made Gretz the best, the GOAT, better than everybody else? Uh. He, I mean, he changed the game. It's funny. I just watched. They had this movie, The Boys on the Bus, this week, and they showed him in Edmonton. I mean, he literally changed the game on his own. Uh, I mean, when everybody, when the top scorer was getting 125 points, 120 points, he, he came and did 200. I mean, it, 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 he wasn't even close to. 
you know, and the, the, the most goals was 76. He gets 92. When you think about that, it's, you, we were talking about Mike Bossy. He scored 50 and 50 the year before. And the next year, Gretz comes in and scores 15, 39 games. And when you think about those numbers, and he was just, there, there was something about him that just, he never stopped. It was he had five points or five goals and he just kept going for the sixth one. He just never stopped and he was the most explosive player to ever I've ever seen play. Luke Robitaille, my guest, of course. Lucky I was there. I was on my way up in Los Angeles, and of course, you and I used to talk quite a bit in those years. And Tony Granado and I, and yeah. we still talk a lot. And even '99. But the points, the numbers that you just mentioned, the 50 goals in 39 games, and the 92 goals. I mean, Luke, correct me if I'm wrong, but the the really absurd thing I'm about to say is that Gretz wasn't. I don't want to say he wasn't a goal scorer, but that wasn't like his M.O. That wasn't his thing. He was a playmaker. <laughs> I know. You know, like, how did that guy get goal 92 scorer. goals? Like, you think about Tamu getting 76. It makes sense, right? He was yeah. a goal scorer. How did Gretz oh, get 92? And then, but the, the funny thing is they say that year he must have missed 20 breakaways. He could Correct. have had 100 goals. Insane. <laughs> it's, it's crazy. It, it is insane because – even if statistically, only his assists, he's leading the entire history of the NHL in points. Just his assists. Right. Amazing. Right. Exactly. All right, so one last thought. Look, you, when you were first hired as president of business ops, you asked the team for the keys to the practice facility, and the response was, why would you want to spend your time doing that? Why would you want to spend your time doing that? Why was that important to you? Uh, because uh, development. Development is everything. Like there's the development of of the game itself in LA to bring in new kids and obviously growing the game for us. We're trying to either acquire or make sure most rinks don't close in LA right now. And then and then Plan B is I knew this is where the Kings practice every day. So to manage it the right way, and then there's the development of our young players that are part of our organization. Like right now. Our team that plays in the AHL in Ontario practice in El Segundo every day. So we're able to work the development with them every single day. And we really feel that's going to pay off over, over a long time. Hey, Luke, finally, spe- speaking of your system and your development, how is my good friend and neighbor Craig Johnson doing? He's doing great. He's, he looks very serious coaching there. He does, doesn't he? He always <laughs> yeah. like he he's as good a guy to hang around as there is outside the rink, and he will pimp you. And he's just a dude, but he does look yeah. serious when he coaches, doesn't he? He looks very serious. He makes me laugh. I'm like, come on, CJ, you got to relax a little bit. But he's doing a really good job. His team is playing well, and really happy for him, and happy for his kid. This kid's a great hockey player, too. He's a great kid, isn't he? I, I, Luke, it's yeah. the craziest thing of all, because even though you and I also used to live in the same neighborhood, our kids grew up together. And the fact that I've got a couple of sons that grew up with his son on the same street, and he's a first-round angel draft pick is wild to me, and especially in Southern California, right? Yeah, oh, absolutely. But it, it is growing here in Southern California. It's amazing how many kids are coming out of here and being uh, – either get a good ride, go to college, and, and then end up uh, getting drafted in the NHL, having a shot. It's, it's really fun to see. 
I love it. And just like I love this conversation, I could do this all day long. He is the president of the LA Kings. He is a member of the Hockey Hall of Fame. And he has been building this thing with this plan to put them right where they are right now. They're on the precipice. They're on the edge. They're not quite there yet, but it's going to be a really interesting end of the regular season. LA at Seattle on Wednesday. Luke, so good to have you on. I really appreciate you. That was fun. It's it's great be, to talk to you. Hope to hope we get in and we see you in the playoffs, my friend. With prices soaring at the pump, Discover has your back with cash back. Use Discover to earn five percent cash back at gas stations and Target now through June on up to fifteen hundred dollars in purchases when you activate. We know every single dollar matters right now, but you can count on us. Get up to $75 cash back this quarter with Discover It card. Limitations to apply and learn more at discover.com slash rewards. Discover.com slash rewards. But I'm talking about the Yankee fans who lost their minds. And again, not all Yankee fans. Just the ones that lost their minds. Repeatedly. When a Guardians outfielder got his bell rung after running into the fence... Yankee fans appear to get into it with the players. Cleveland outfielder Miles Straw was so pissed, he climbed the outfield fence to yell at the fans. And when asked about it after the game, he said, quote, brutal, worst fan base on the planet. End of quote. We can imagine how that went. They then lived down to that reputation a few moments later after the Yankees walked it off. Game over. Yankees win. The Yankees win. Now somebody threw something on the field, and the Indians are all running out to right center. And the Yankees are too. I mean, that ruins what would be a great Yankee comeback. And the Yankees have run out there and telling the fans, stop throwing things. Throwing baseballs. I think that's disgraceful. That's disgraceful. That's not Yankee Stadium. Those aren't Yankee fans. Hooligans. Anyway, what a dramatic inning. Of all the dramatic things, you know, hooligans is a great word. But I hate to say it, those are Yankee fans, and they are hooligans. Oh, check that. It was not the Indians, the Guardians. They're hooligans. And those hooligans... They were doing that, and not all of them. There are Yankee fans, and then there were the hooligans. The hooligans were getting into shenanigans. And then the shenanigans nearly led to a real Donnybrook. Because those hooligans thought that it was okay to chuck whatever they had in their hands at the Cleveland players after the Yankees won. Losers. Total losers. I'm not saying all of you Yankee fans, just the losers throwing things on the field. Congrats on winning the game. Condolences on losing at life. But don't worry, Yankee fans. They redeemed themselves on Sunday. They owned up to it and they acknowledged that they were in the wrong and they should not have been throwing crap on the field. Sure, they did not. Instead, they chanted Cry Baby at Straw, as well as Peter Parker in response to him going Spider-Man on the fence. Right, because Straw is the bad guy for not wanting you to throw crap at him. 
He's a crybaby because he would just like to play a game and not be in target range for Yankee fans to throw crap at him. I mean, God forbid anybody say anything negative about a crew of fans that have glossed themselves the bleacher creatures. Like I'd say, stay classy Yankee fans, but it's not just Yankee fans. It's everywhere. This went down in San Diego on Friday night. In the air left center field, Bellinger on his horse. He'll get there and get a can thrown at him. One gone in the sixth inning. Cody Bellinger tracking down a fly ball in center, and somebody throws a beer can on the field. Again, the hell are you doing? Like, where is your life that you're chucking a beer can on the field at a baseball game? Again, as I mentioned, when fans started to come back from the pandemic the first time, there were a bunch of incidents, and the argument was, and the thinking was, I don't know, maybe it's been a long time. Folks just forgot how to act because they were away so long during the pandemic. That's not the case anymore, though. Not that that was a good excuse even then, but it's even worse now. It's never been okay to throw crap at players or on the field to play or to jump onto the court in a fake ref jersey. But even if you needed time to relearn that, you've had that time. See, this is different, and it sucks. I mean, it really does suck because it's not just fans throwing items on the field. It's fans throwing punches in bunches in the stands with really bad intentions. Like, there were fights between Padre and Dodger Dodger fans on Friday night, and then even more on Saturday night. And again, I've got to ask, you know, the hell is wrong with you? It's a baseball game. How the hell are fan bases getting into it? Not once, but like multiple fights in April. And we're not even talking about games that really matter. And you're getting that worked up. And you're brawling. And noses and jaws and faces are getting shattered. Because, of course, it's not about the game. These aren't baseball fans going to a game. These are fight fans looking for a reason to fight. And they'll do anything to find that reason. Like, I can't believe I still have to say this, but you can't throw stuff on the field or throw punches in the stands unless you're directly threatened. The only throwing that you should do as a fan is throwing back a few pops, max. And that might not be for everybody either because clearly some of you people cannot handle your beer. And if that's the case, maybe going to the games is not for you. Maybe leaving your house is not for you. If you can't go to a game in April and not get into a brawl, maybe you stop going to games. I mean, I hate to be the guy who says, relax, it's only a game, but it really is only a game. It's not a reason to go. And if you think that going to a game is a reason to go because somebody's wearing the other team's colors and you've been disrespected, don't go to the games. And it's not just Yankee fans, and it's not just Padre fans, and it's not just Dodger fans. It's fans everywhere. Y'all have lost your minds if you're doing things like that and have forgotten how to be fans. Chris Olave is my guest. Chris, it is really nice to have you on the program. How are you? I'm doing great, man. How you doing? Good, dude. Appreciate good. Really good to have you. Been looking forward to it. So let me ask you, from the outside, it seems like, it feels like to me, like it's been a really long draft preparation, and I haven't even done any of the physical work myself. What has the experience been like for you, and how are you feeling now that we're only a few days away from this finally happening? Oh, man, yeah. So it's been a long process, but... Uh... 
it's a dream come true, man, to be in this position today. And I'm, I'm glad I'm in this position to have this opportunity. So it's just a blessing. And so I can't wait for Josh to. Chris Olavi is joining us. I'm curious about this. You had a huge career at Ohio State. But you know how this process goes, right? You're going to have people. They're going to pick your game apart. They're going to look for any weakness they can find. They're even going to compare you with your teammates. Like, what's that part of the process been like? Are you cool with that? You understand that? Or does that get a little annoying at times? <laughs> Man, I mean, that's, that's just uh, the whole process. They're going to pick at you. They're going to see what you can't do. Uh, but that's just their job. Man. That's the job to critique us. And uh, it's just my job to to, to look forward and, and go perform on the field. So, uh, like I said, I'm, I'm glad to be in this position. And uh, all glory to God at the end of the day. All right, so there's so many aspects of your game and your journey that I appreciate and I respect and I want to get to. But let me ask you this. Before last season, Ryan Day was talking about the national championship game against Alabama. Your coach said, quote, we didn't get into a rhythm, but he eventually got open against Patrick Sertan a bunch. When he goes up against the best players, he typically plays well, end of quote. I'm curious, what was it about that matchup or any matchup against an elite player that brings out the best in you and enables you to raise your game up? Uh, that's just who I am. Man. I'm a competitor. Uh, I get, I get, when the best when the best players uh, line up against me, that's what I want. So uh, I feel like that's how, that's how you rise to the occasion. And uh, as a competitor, uh, that's what you want at the end of the day. So uh, I, like, I like when I get the best players against me. I feel like that's, that's what brings the best out of me. So, And, and that's, a, that's a lot of fun to me, uh, playing against the best. So, and that's a huge reason why I went to Ohio State. Chris Olave joining us. I'm going to get to that in a minute, the reason why you went to Ohio State. The other thing that Day talks about, though, is your route running. And people around the game talk about the fact that you are arguably, if not the best route runner in college football. Do you agree with that? And then secondly, how do you explain your ability as a route runner? Like, is it natural talent, or is that just the result of hard work? Uh, that's, just, that's just how I attack a game. I feel like uh, I want to be uh, specialized in route running and my ability to do that. Uh, I feel like I worked, I worked, real, hard, I worked real hard on, uh, on route running. I watch a lot of film with different players, and I try to turn it into my own form of route running. So I feel like I work hard on that, and uh, – it's a mix of, of natural and, and, and hard work. See, the amazing thing is, though, you really didn't, really, really didn't start playing receiver until your junior year of high school. So, like, when you first started, what was it like? Did it feel pretty natural, or did you have to really put in the work to get caught up? Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, I started playing true receiver in my junior year of high school. So, uh, I felt like uh, playing three sports and playing basketball, I kind of, uh, transitioned me over to the field, uh, and I feel like it, it like I said, it was kind of natural at first, and then when I got to Ohio State, I kind of uh, dug deep into being a true receiver and focusing on one sport, so uh, it definitely helped me a lot playing basketball, running track, and trans translated over to the field uh, naturally, so... Chris, not everybody can. I mean, you obviously are a gifted, gifted athlete. You can play multiple sports. We talk about this on this show all the time in this era of specialization, and you touched on this right now, but how much better are you for having played other sports and not locking in on just that one thing? Man, man, I can't tell you enough. I mean, that helped me a lot. Uh, just being able to, to bounce back and forth uh, between sports uh, since I was young, uh, I feel like it helped me a lot, and it helped my competitive nature, so... Uh, just being in that competitive 
three different competitive environments. So I feel like it helped me a lot in having those tools over from the other from the other sports to translate over to football. I feel like it helped me uh, a lot. So. Chris Olave is joining us. Now, you mentioned this is why you wanted to go to Ohio State. And not everybody knows the story of how you got there. It's pretty amazing. Ryan Day, of course, originally went to Mission Hills to recruit quarterback Jack Tuttle. And your high school coach got you out of class. Got you out of class to catch passes for Tuttle because he wanted Day to see you. What do you remember about that day and how that went down? Man, I remember everything like it was yesterday, man. I mean, that's the day that really changed my life. Uh, Coach Day came down and quarterback was a big time recruit so he came to see my quarterback uh, watch him throw. We was just out we was just out on the field playing catch and uh, he just liked the way I caught the ball. So uh, and from there on we kinda stayed in contact and uh, you, you could see how, how everything went. Good thing Chris Hauser was your uh High school coach, man, that was great. He, like, he knew. He knew. He said to Ryan Day, listen, this guy's special. You got to keep an eye on this guy. And then you played for Brian Hartline at Ohio State. He's regarded as one of the best receiver coaches in the country. He said that you're one of the guys that makes him excited to go to work. That's really high praise. What was it like to play for him, and what did you learn? Uh, that's my guy, man. He, te- he teaches a lot, uh, not only on the field, but he's a, he's a coach off the field, too. He's uh, a guy uh, I have a great relationship, too. Uh, I also look forward to going in there uh, to see him. He, he brings the same energy every day. So you, go, you know what you're going to get out of Coach Hartline. So uh, I'll pray and respect to him. And uh, he's hands down the best receiver coach in the country. So That's what you want from a coach, right? That you get that same energy every single day and you know what you're going to get. I'm going to ask you about this guy. I said to you earlier, does it get annoying when you're compared to teammates? Not this one. If we're talking about guys that you worked with at Ohio State, I've got to ask you about Terry McLaurin. Man, I love him. I love the guy. I just love the guy. I love his game. I love the way he carries himself. I have so much respect for him. You've said he's one of your favorite teammates. What was it like to work with and learn from him? Uh, yeah, I was a freshman when he was a senior. Uh, uh, Terry's a guy. He's, he's one-on-one, man. You can't, you're not going to find nobody like Terry uh, on and off the field. Uh, he's an even better person, so. Uh, one of my favorite teammates, and for sure, goes to him. And uh, just the way he cares about people uh, off the field, I feel like uh, that carried over to the NFL well. And uh, he's getting what it des- he's getting what he deserves now. So I'm proud of him and everything he's achieved. Hey, Chris, you know how it is. Like you need a why, right? If if anybody it seems to me, if you want to accomplish something great, you need a why. And the bigger the why, the better. You've said that your motivation comes in large part from your parents and your siblings. How would you describe your life in your house growing up, and why is your family such a great source of motivation for you? Uh, that's that's uh, my number one motivation, just my family. Uh, we're so close. Uh, we're so tight. Our bonds are unbreakable. So uh, we just, uh, since, since since I was young, we all had that competitive, competitive uh, trait in us, and every single one of us, and I, I learned from them a lot, especially being the youngest, so. Uh, everything I do is, is really for them. Uh, that's, that's my why, and that's why I go so hard. D- does that, like, everything you do is for them, and that's why you go so hard, and that's your why. Does that ever, or did it ever feel like a burden, or did it feel like a privilege or a responsibility? Like, what did that feel like? Uh, no, I didn't really feel like that. Uh, both of my brothers are, are college, went to college and played football, too, so uh, we all have a our standard is, is higher, and uh, if we don't meet that standard, we're kind of upset with ourselves. So uh, I feel like 
uh, we're very disciplined and uh, we, we want to achieve our goals and we work so hard to achieve that. So uh, once we get the opportunity, I feel like we'll, we'll all take advantage of that. Yes, sir. I love that. I love that. Like and people always say, the standard is the standard. It's one thing to say it. It's another to believe it. It's another to live it. And you just said it. That when we don't meet the standard, it's disappointing and that we're disciplined. I like that a lot. All right, so finally, according to reports, the plan is for you to attend the draft in Vegas. If that's the case, I've got to ask, do you have your look already picked out, or is that still kind of in process? Oh, yeah, of course. Uh, <laughs> you got to go. You got to <laughs> You got to plan that months before the draft. I'm, I'm blessed to be able to attend a draft. Uh, some things uh, I'll cherish forever. So uh, watching the draft growing up, I always wanted to be a part of it. And my opportunity finally comes. So I'll glory to God. And I'm, I'm definitely uh, ready, suited, and booted. My man, I, yeah, I know. Exactly. I knew it. I, I knew that when I asked the question, just like I know better than to ask you what it's going to be. We'll find out on draft night. But I knew two days, three days before that you already had it picked out. Chris Olave is an All-American, a team captain, a two-time first-team All-Big Ten player, an all-time Ohio State great. Chris, great to have you on the show. Thank you so much. Have a great week. Good luck on draft night, and I look forward to talking to you again soon. Yes, sir. Appreciate you, man. God bless. Good night now!